Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 24 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, a consultant with Capco uh, based in Dallas, Texas. And today we're going to be talking about a pretty interesting topic, machine learning versus database indexes, where we're going to try to determine if machine learning is going to kill the traditional database index. I've got a special uh, guest joining me also from Capco, Vikas Popuri. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Vikas. Thanks, Rob. Uh, this is because I am from Houston, still within Texas, like Rob is. Uh, I'm a practitioner slash consultant within the information management discipline. Uh, working with data is what I love, and then I help a lot of uh, customers uh, solve their uh, problems related to data. Wonderful. Well, I am really excited to have you here. So we uh, have been tracking uh, a paper that came out la- late last year. Um, it was put out by Google. And the name of the paper is A Machine Learning Approach to Database Indexes. So you'll be able to find a link to this and a few other articles that we talk about in the show notes over at ForTheLoveData.com. And uh, I'll cover that. But uh, there's, it definitely gets a little bit dense as far as some diagrams and some formulas that they're using. Uh, we'll try to keep it a little bit high level here. But for more details, check out the show notes and check out those papers. And you can always reach out to us on Twitter or via email if you have any questions and, and want to talk about this further. Uh, Vikas, feel free to chime in here on any of the, the points that we're talking about. I think we'll give some background from the paper and the articles, and then we'll talk about our observations and where we think that this might lead in the future. Um, so for a little bit of background, Google used uh, what they called learned indexes, which are basically machine learning models to access data and compared it to B-tree, hash, and bloom filter indices that you would find in a traditional uh, database. They, they did this on a few different types of data. One of the main uh, data sets that they used was a 200 million uh, record data set of, uh, I believe it was weblog files. Yeah. And they trained a model using multiple stages where the earliest stages could approximate a location and later stages would work with a subset of data to improve accuracy. And one important thing to note is each stage could choose a different model to advance the search further. So uh, there's a diagram that looks a lot like a decision tree, but it's not actually a decision tree. It's just a way for them to show the different models that they would use to find a position. And at the end of the day, why don't Vikas, why don't you give a little background on traditional indexes and how they work? I mean, at the, uh, at the outset, we have a key that we're trying to find, and, and then we're trying to find a position on the disk where it is, right? Sure, thanks. I, I like the way the author uh, did the uh, abstract uh, in the sense that they gave us a, a footing on how the traditional indexes work, the B-trees, the hash algorithms, or the bitmap indexes for... Uh, uh, what, what they call a blue filter, uh, and then they extend extend that thinking into how it would translate into a machine learning thing. So for me, the aha moment was when the author uh, distills these uh, uh, what do you call the B three indexes as if it was a regression function. So the idea is uh, there is a key value that you're uh, using and you're trying to find a position out of it. So if in, in pure regression terms. It's a function on this particular key, which translates into a location, a memory location. So if you see from that, 
even though we didn't realize that we were kind of using some learned indexes per se but they were they were very much set in stone in the way they were built uh, typically overfitting a model so there is that model uh, perspective brought in now what they are claiming or i would say claim to fame in this case would be how about we bring in other kinds of models into the mix in order to predict what that uh, uh, memory position would be for a given key value. So what they're saying is if we can introduce neural networks and whatnot, that's where my the bulb that uh, in my brain, it clicked for me that, yes, you translate this whole indexing into a regression function, then now it becomes a machine language problem where you train a model, make it learn. And that's where the hierarchy diagram that Rob was mentioning, where you have series of models and then every new or next model learns from what the prior models already learned. So it's a constant learning, it's a stream of learning. I see a lot of promise and then it is very interesting for me. It's a very interesting facet that they've brought in. Uh, another thing that struck me was if you if you were to compare a B tree versus a hash algorithm, so B tree would be uh, giving you a pointer to a range of values like a page. So that means you get to the page among so many pages, but you still have to go figure out where the exact location of whatever value that you're looking for. And then if you were to scale it to the size of the data points that you have, then you get a hash algorithm. So there is this scaling between those two versions of indexes. What they're saying is, how about uh, now not trying to scale to the size of data, but rather scale to the complexity involved, which is what machine language is helping them leverage a lot. That was one thing. And then the other keynote that I found was the ability to uh, uh, use the data correlation and any kind of uh, relationship between the positions that they end up being in. So I like this. This seems very promising, Rob. It does. So I want to get into some more details here, but let me take one step back and make sure that I break this down so that everybody that's listening understands. So whether you're interacting with a website or an application from a front end and you're selecting an item or you're typing something into a form or you're on the back end and you're writing a traditional SQL query, at the end of the day, a lot of times you have a, a piece of data that you're trying to find or a set of records that you're trying to find and you could either do a full table scan, which means I'm going to go scrape every record from the disk and I'm going to look at it and see if it matches. Very expensive. Very expensive. And depending on if you're operating at web scale like Google is, you could be talking about billions of records. Correct. A lot or, of, lot of uh, processing. And then you have to also understand the cost to the benefit here. Right. So traditional indexes came up as a way of saying, hey, we're going to store all this information on disk, but then we're also going to store a much smaller map of keys to their positions. And so if I only care about one column or a handful of columns or one subset of the data, I'm gonna index that somewhere different from where I store the data. And a lot of the optimization engines in databases are very efficient at saying, I know what these indexes are and I know how to look at those first and then go find the data as quickly as possible. Um, but at the end of the day, what you're still fundamentally saying is I have some kind of key that I want to locate the position of that key uh, on the disk so that I can go out and get the rest of the attributes associated with that. Right. And like you were saying, Google said, yeah, that's essentially a model, but it's a model that's been maybe over-engineered in some uh, respects, or maybe there are different approaches that we can use to get that same data more quickly. And two of the things that I think they were trying to solve for are 
can we access the data more quickly than a traditional index and can the data that we store for the model take up less space than the amount of space required by the index because if you have large tables and then you have large indexes sometimes there are heuristics where you want to double or triple the estimate of what the actual table size is going to be to reserve enough room for the indexes that you're going to put on top of it. Correct. Yeah. So looking through this a little bit more, like I said, they developed a multi-stage set of models that could go in and one model would determine what the next best model would be to get you close enough to the position. And one of the things that I do want to note here is they present some comparisons between like B-Tree and Learned Index or Hash and Learned Index and like I said, that's in the paper. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but the, the one thing that they did emphasize in several places is their benchmarks were done using CPUs, not GPUs or TPUs. And Correct, yeah. TPUs was a new term for me. Was it for yeah, you? Yes, it was. I didn't okay. realize what it was, but again. So TPU is Tensor Processing Unit. And so GPUs and TPUs are more purpose-built uh, chips that can... That can um, do those searches very specific to to those tasks. Plus, uh, I think they are more uh, for uh, resource-intensive, compute-intensive purposes. Those chips come in there. G uh, GPUs, uh, typically, if you look at, they are used in imaging, gaming, and those kind of areas right. where you need a lot of data that you have to process in a very quick period. And I'm guessing TPUs are the next level divider. Yeah, and I, I know they do talk a little bit about TensorFlow, um, which is where they did some of their testing. Um, so I'm sure it's related to that as well. Uh, but some of the stats are pretty staggering. So like I said, a lot of their tests were on a 200 million record set. Um, they did several tests with B-Tree indexes, and those indexes uh, required anywhere from 6 to 25 megabytes of space just for the index alone. And they were able to return a search in somewhere in the neighborhood of 260 to 270 nanoseconds. Um, with learned indexes, they were able to, uh, the, the largest index was 3 megabytes. So they went from 0.15 to 3. So they had savings, space savings in the neighborhood of 76 to 99%, which is pretty staggering. And then um, the access rates were anywhere from 33 to 44% quicker than B-Tree. And I think one of the powerful uh, nuances of this is, you know, one, this was only done with CPU. So if you, if you plug in GPUs or TPUs to the mix, that's going to that's gonna be some uh, improvements. And then the fact that you can use different models at different stages really uh, has the potential to unlock even even more performance gains but i guess uh, what uh, what we should understand is it's better that they did it with uh, your traditional normal uh, chips and not the gpus and tpus because if uh, other uh, uh, processing uh, systems or uh, databases will have to use or will have to leverage this information it's good to have the benchmark uh, which is same right you wouldn't have databases running on uh, gpus or uh, tpus type of uh, infrastructure so it is good that they did on a very normal traditional or conventional uh, infrastructure definitely more so of an apples to apples, apples kind of to comparison for uh, yes so one of the things i actually as i was going through reading some of this I was thinking to myself, yeah, you know, this is great, but indexes automatically update whenever you insert or delete records. But if you have a, a, a more 
not traditional, but uh, more of a machine learning type of model, don't you have to retrain that model every once in a while? And so they actually made some comments about that. They did, that. yeah. So that was something which uh, when I was reading, like I did not even go through half of the document and then it said, okay, what if you had to rebuild the index for some reason? So the author argues that anytime you need to rebuild the index for various reasons is again, uh, another set of learning so which is what it will be a new bout of learning for the model. So right. uh, I think I'm, I'm sold on that uh, thought process. Well, and, and one of the curious things, uh, so I haven't worked with C++ in quite a while, but the folks from Google commented that they could retrain a simple model on a 200 million record data set in just a few seconds there. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, arguably faster than it would take to rebuild an index. Yes. And depending on what environment you're talking about, if you're talking about a traditional data warehouse or something that's reporting oriented, you might be able to retrain those models in non-peak times of data access uh, yeah. to, to make them improve. And this that, that point becomes pertinent when you have not necessarily a read-only, suppose let's say in a database world, not, not necessarily a read-only database, but if you're doing inserts or updates to records and you have to come back and then uh, uh, rebuild your index. So typically, uh, our, our, the systems, what they do is they they do those inserts separately and then they rebuild the index and that's how they um, they ensure that everything is uh, in sync. Uh, so so that, that is what the author uh, construes to be another layer of learning. So I guess maybe maybe there's not much difference. So what, what was a distinct uh, function uh, right now can become a very uh, embedded function. So one of the things, or a few of the observations that, that I made when I was looking at this is they did say several times in several places that they used TensorFlow with Python as the front end. And there is a lot of initial overhead for that to start up as a test stack. And so along with the GPU, TPU thing, that's definitely an important piece to note. Um, but And another piece is, like we said at the beginning, like, like Vikas hinted at, when you think of it in this context, B-tree indexes are essentially a model, um, just like these other ones. They just might be a less efficient model, less uh, cutting-edge one. And so I, I never really thought about B-tree indexes in that manner, um, but I really do think that's an appropriate way to think about them yeah. uh, in this context and going forward. Yeah. Um, the paper did make some assumptions, uh, like they did use a random hash function um, and they had a static data set that they didn't do updates on uh, for their testing. So I would be curious if you were using like a multi-attribute uh, set of hashing, kind of like bitmap indexes in uh, Oracle, or if the data was changing rapidly, how long it would take to retrain the model versus maintain an index. And so I think there's definitely more testing that needs to take place on that. Yeah, uh, especially the traditional indexes are a very mature uh, uh, thought process, whereas this is becoming a nascent one. So I think we'll have to give it some time right. to get into maturity and then maybe, yeah, I guess, yeah. So if you're looking for white paper topic ideas and you want to build on top of this one, there's definitely some things that you could uh, that, that you could do and, and continue the testing on. And second thing is maybe this is something that organizations can do a POC within themselves and see if there are savings to be uh, had. And then maybe there is a need for thinking this. Again, I think we're jumping the gun here. This might be a little in the research area. <laughs> yeah, maybe not prime time yet. Yeah, but I think yeah. I would be shocked if Microsoft and Oracle and a few other folks are not already thinking about this and, I, I would, and yeah. how, how to look this way. 
Um, the other thing that would be kind of curious is um, when you start talking about, uh, you know, HADR distribution of data, uh, what, you know, what kind of additional infrastructure and additional compute pieces do you need to be able to train these models on the side and plug it into the database? Correct. I'd be very curious about that. And then uh, right before we started this, Rob and I were discussing that if you had a composite index where you had multiple fields together in an index, so how would that work in this in a machine learning or learning kind of a setup? Uh, those are things that uh, they'll slowly be unveiled, I guess, as, right. as more research comes through. And I'm curious if you could basically just scale to the left or the right the number of models that you uh, that, that that are evaluated. So, like, you know, if if the model selection sort of resembles a decision tree, yeah. If you just had one higher level stage of evaluation, saying if it's one attribute, do yeah, this tree. Yeah. If it's another attribute follow this set of models yes. you know that might be a way to achieve that performance yeah maybe that's what yeah you you could you could slice the data by uh, by volume which is number of rows that you would process as one level and then you can move to the next level and then you are now processing more rows this could be another way to dice that data set and see those multi-level models that you would see in the paper which rob clearly says is not a uh, decision tree <laughs> Um, so another piece that I want to make sure that we talk about, and I mentioned it earlier, but the use of different models is very intriguing. So you could essentially maintain traditional indexes as a backup failsafe at the very bottom as your last model. So if you if you can approximate to that location faster, and then you have that as a failsafe, yeah, you know that can get you that last mile. Or you might be able to use an optimizer to say, hey, if I if I start not being able to meet the metrics that a B-tree normally would do. Maybe that means that my model's out of date, so I'm going to switch to a B-tree in the interim until it can be rebuilt, and then I'm going to switch back. So I think it's kind of a, a really intriguing thing to think about there. Right. Or you could take the output of a traditional index, which is more robust uh, relative to its maturity, and then that will be your uh, 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 test data. And then you can train your model so that you can see how far or how close you are to those values, which is what the model leverages to identify the error. And then it uses that error as a boundary to go, maybe if you say if you're off by uh, uh, five units from X, then it says, okay, plus or minus five units of X is how you want to go. And that's how the model learns itself. A couple other pieces that I think are pretty intriguing about this is this uh, paper and the, the other articles that I looked at basically only looked at a static set of data and how you train the model based on what the data looks like. And so the power of that over some of the traditional indexes is inherently newer machine learning models can look at the distribution of data. Yeah. And it can understand if I've got clusters of values here that are dates or integers or strings, I can uh, I can break that up and model it differently. But the other piece that the that the paper doesn't really go into is what if I were to also look at what people are querying for. So what if I if I said, hey, I want to look at what people are querying for most often, or what products are being you know, picked on a application front end that is translating into database lookups. Like if I try to look at the behavior of people going after this and the distribution of data, then you have multiple features in there 
that, uh, that, that may make this even more powerful. And so that's one thing that, you know, optimizers try to do that with, uh, with the analysis of the query. Okay. But you, and you get some of that with explain plans over time and, and the plan management in, in some of the more uh, robust enterprise level database uh, vendors. But I don't think you really see any kind of historical uh, pathway that you could see with machine learning. So you might be able to start doing things with a much longer cadence like, hey, I know at the end of the year, people are going to be querying for this type of information. And so my model needs to take that into account, whereas at every quarter, it's going to be slightly different information. Or on a Tuesday, it's much different than what's on a the, the 31st of a month. That's a very interesting thought. Okay, so yeah, we'll have to see if this can be uh, linked to user behavior or query behavior, and then the uh, the areas that are frequently. Okay, that's that's yeah, that's something to think about. If there is a way to connect the models learning on uh, some kind of uh, user behavior or something like that. So I'm going to start noodling on this for a second. So you could also uh, you might also learn nuances, uh, you know, from different geographies. If there's two different populations of users that tend to interact with different parts of the data right. uh, more or initially, then you know that might drive you down two different paths and select two different models. Okay, maybe we're getting ahead of our yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm throwing all these ideas out there. Yeah. Someone please take a look at this and figure out a way to, uh, to bring this across all databases um, so that we can have a fun playground that we can try it out and, and see how it behaves. So uh, I want to sum up some of the things that, that we've talked about. So check out the white papers. Really interesting. couple of interesting graphs that you can look at. Uh, definitely some areas for improvement. So I would watch for uh, additional white papers or maybe some startup initiatives that are taking this to the next level with GPUs and TPUs, with looking at the data, uh, how the data is accessed, and um, kind of see where this takes it. And maybe even looking at more appropriate frameworks for different use cases. Like I said, they use TensorFlow and Python on this, but maybe there's something that has a little bit lower overhead that's quicker to maintain or, or quicker to start up or easier to maintain. And so I'm really interested to see where this goes. Yeah, me too. I agree. I think that's going to wrap things up for uh, this episode. So, Vikas, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Rob. I think I might have to have you back on another episode so that we can chat about some of the other things that you've done around data science and machine learning. Sure. Um, so if you want to reach out to us, you can definitely find show notes and you can uh, leave comments at fortheloveofdata.com slash e24. That'll be the specific link to this episode. Uh, you can also tweet at us your number one takeaway at love of data. And uh, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, this is Robert Furr signing off. Have, have fun, guys. Have fun, guys.